Welcome to The Sit Down, a crime history podcast presented by Barstool Sports. Here's your host, Jeff Nadu. What's up, everybody? And welcome in to another edition of The Sit Down. As always, if you enjoy this video and you're watching us on YouTube, make sure you hit that like button so you never miss another sit down video. Also, Make sure you hit that subscribe button and make sure the notification bell is on so you always get the latest in sit-down content. If you're checking out the show on our audio platforms on Google Pods, Spotify, or iTunes, welcome in. I hope you enjoy the show. Make sure you hit that review button. Leave us a detailed review and a five-star rating. What up, everybody? We're back. I am your host, Jeff Nadu, here on episode 99 of the show next week. What our 100th episode will be here. And I'm really excited about this episode because I think for me, it's the first time that I'm really going to combine my two loves, right? The two things that I've always been good at, right? And that's crime content and college basketball, which is one of my favorite things. Uh, As many of you know, uh, this week, the NCAA tournament will kick off um, here and It's a great time of year. We just had Selection Sunday. The brackets are out. I still remember as a kid, um, one of my favorite times of year as a young kid was uh, seeing the bracket. I remember they put it in the newspaper, and I'd go over to my grandpa's house, and we would – he's a big college hoops fan. We would fill it out. We'd get our pens and our our brackets, and we'd fill it out. And uh, college basketball has always been a true love for me. So today I figured, you know what? I'm here. We've done a lot of interviews lately. It's just me. I'm going to sit here and we're going to chat about those two things, college basketball and the mafia. And I want to talk about really one of the more notorious mob point shaving schemes of all time. There have been many point shaving schemes over the years, you know, Toledo, Arizona State, um, CCNY, all these different ones. But, you know, I want to talk today about the point shaving scheme in 1978, 1979 at Boston College. And what I find interesting about this point shaving case is there's really no proof that any player outside of one was actually shaving points. And we're going to kind of get into the crux of it, how it all happened, and really what ultimately went on with this whole thing. Um, This is kind of a complex thing, and I think it gets so much uh, love because of the connection to the Goodfellas crew, right? Henry Hill, uh, Jimmy Burke. Look, it was no secret that in the 70s and into the 80s, once Lufthansa happens, the gigantic robbery at Lufthansa Air Terminal involving Burke and crew, it was no secret that the FBI wanted Burke off the street, right? And Burke would be included in this case. But what we'll find out is there was very little proof he actually was involved in the conspiracy to point shave or to have kids point shave. He was kind of put up as this mythological figure in this whole case. And that was done through the slimy Henry Hill, uh, who we'll talk about. Henry Hill is really a guy that, you know, we've all heard about. Uh, we'll kind of talk a little bit about Goodfellas due to some of the scenes in the film that connected this. Henry Hill is really, though, one of the more slimy people in the history of the mob as far as his cooperation his throwing young kids, college kids under the bus in this case. So we're going to get all to it. And what's so crazy about this case as well is it all starts as kind of an idea between 
two guys who were just regular gamblers from Pittsburgh, and they think of this idea, hey, we have this friend of ours who is a player on the team. Let's see if he'll shave, right? Shave points. So let's get into it. Let's rock with it. Before we do that, though, I do want to tell you guys a little bit. Next week is our 100th episode, and I'm going to spend some time thanking some people. We're going to have a fun show. I'm going to really probably make it about the listeners. I'm probably going to do a big Q&A, just kind of a, a, a let our hair down episode, uh, maybe bring on a guest or two, have some fun, and um, you know, just enjoy the 100th episode. This is um, such a big week and big couple of weeks for me, um, and I'm super proud that we've got to 100 episodes Knock on wood. I guess I could die between now and next week, but knock on wood. We'll hope that doesn't happen. But uh, let's get into the show. As always, um, I will say a quick uh, thing or two. I'm on TikTok now, guys. I have to. I ran on there. I'm up over 5,000 followers already. So if you're on TikTok, check us out at the Sit Down Crime Pod. I'll put that in the description of the video. We're on a Facebook group. Uh, the sit down of crime mystery podcast. I'm just trying to enhance the show. We've done great on YouTube and on the show uh, on audio, but want to, you know, extend it a little bit. And I'll put all the where to follow us in the descriptions of the videos. Make sure you check that out. You guys always support the show and we appreciate that. So let's get in to the Boston college point shaving scheme. And I want to start with the kind of unwitting creators of this scheme. Um, these two individuals, Rocco and Tony Perla, Rocco on the left with the glasses, Tony on the right, they were essentially small gamblers, right? They were neighborhood guys, guys that um, you know were involved in, in a furniture store uh, and still are actually, I believe, there today. Uh, and they are gamblers, right? They want to you know get a leg up like anybody else. And Rocco Perla realizes his old high school friend. The guy on the right, Rick Kuhn, um, is now at Boston College. Now, Rick Kuhn is this guy from Pittsburgh, kind of a, a, a blue-collar guy, you know, definitely a kid that was moving around in the streets, you know, definitely uh, had some street smarts. He's in his going into his senior year at BC. Um, he's kind of a rough-and-tumble guy, and they kind of get this idea, hey, maybe we can contact him about this. Just get him to lose by a certain amount. You know, he don't have to do a ton. And maybe we can find an edge here, right? Because that's the goal of any gambler, right? An edge. All of us play the same thing. We all have the same numbers and schematics and trends. And we all have essentially the same opportunity. If you can get that edge, though, with a really good basketball team. At the time, BC was considered a, a really good team. Um, obviously today it's a little different, but back then they were a good team. You know, they were a team that should compete to go to the NCAA tournament. And if you can get an edge, why not try? So Perla's, they contact Kuhn. Kuhn is um, obviously an important player on the team, but he's not the super most important. And that's the thing. I don't think they quite realized that they would need multiple players to make this scheme happen. But the truth was on the Boston College basketball team back then, one of the best players that they had was Jim Sweeney. Now, Sweeney was kind of that all-American kid. Uh, according to many people that knew Jim Sweeney, he was the quintessential Boston College guy, right? Good-looking guy, Catholic, Irish, from Trenton, New Jersey, just kind of was BC, you know, your typical BC guy. Um, Kuhn and him were quite close. 
So they kind of essentially believed, hey, maybe we can get him in on this. He can infect this thing a whole lot better than maybe Kuhn can. But then they realized, hey, if we're going to do this, we want to get the most money possible down in these games. So they start to kind of connect more people to the operation. The operation still hasn't happened yet. That's where they meet uh, and connect one of their local friends, a guy called Paul Maisie. Now, Maisie's interesting because he's a guy who was a convicted drug dealer. Uh, he is a heroin dealer, a cocaine dealer. He was a burglar. And he had went back into the 60s with the mafia in Pittsburgh. He was connected with a guy called Chucky Porter. Chucky Porter at one point was the underboss in the Pittsburgh crime family. Um, and we'll talk about what Maisie would ultimately do down the road after the fact. But if we have watched and seen Goodfellas, Paul Maisie was essentially the Pittsburgh connection. Through his time serving a drug beef at Lewisburg Federal Prison, Paul Maisie meets Henry Hill, who was also serving time at, the, uh, at that point for, uh, I believe, extortion. So Henry Hill and Maisie are old friends. They knew each other inside. So Maisie had these connections in New York through Henry Hill. The group realized if we put down a lot of money with local bookmakers, we're going to get found out. We have to expand our reach and start betting into New York because they have obviously bigger books. They could take bigger action and we can get people in on this to use as leverage with some of these young kids in high or in college. So Maisie through Henry Hill that's the muscle here. That's the backing. That's going to be the ability to put a lot of money in on this operation. And if we need it, we use Henry Hill as kind of, hey, you know, you're going to have a trouble if I beat you up or something like that. So Hill was looked at as muscle and he was very connected at the time. Henry Hill was connected through the Lucchese crime family to Jimmy Burke, who, as I've talked about in past shows, I mean, Jimmy Burke is one of the most successful non-Italians ever associated with the mob. He was incredibly vicious. He was a huge moneymaker. He was extremely respected in the Lucchese crime family. Um, and I've always said, I feel like Goodfellas, in a way, didn't even emphasize as big as he was, right? Jimmy Burke was a true gangster to the core, right? And he was a guy who was awarded the same respect as, as, as someone that was a made man, a captain, you know, he never could be made, but he was looked at as very respected. And he was that guy who Hill was essentially kicking up to. And the goal of any associate or someone connected to the mafia is you're always coming up with schemes. You're always scheming. You're always trying to find a way to make money because your boss is going to come to you. And then their boss is going to come to them and say, why aren't you making money for this family? What's going on? It's like any other company. So the, the top guy in the crew, Paul Vario, the captain, he's going to come to Burke, and Burke's going to come to Hill. Everyone needs to flow money up. So Hill sees dollar signs. Now, it's made clear, it has to be made clear, there is no known connection that Jimmy Burke ever had to any of these players. Okay, He was, to me, just dangled as this guy who, hey, if you screw with us, you're screwing with him. And he was used as a carrot, right? You go to these young kids like Jim Sweeney or or Rick Kuhn and say, hey, um, the mafia in New York, who, you know, is one of the most connected families, uh, they're behind this. And if you don't do what we say, you know, we're going to hurt your girlfriend. We're going to hurt you. We're going to hurt someone close to you. So this worked and everyone was in unison to what they were going to do. So in November of 1978, 
Kuhn sets up a meeting between Hill, Maisie, and he brings Jim Sweeney. Now, Jim Sweeney just thinks it's some kind of dinner or something. And Kuhn essentially says, hey, you want to get in on this with us? I'm in. Um, and according to Sweeney, he would decline involvement. Now, Henry Hill would tell a different story. Now, I want to take this opportunity so people understand completely. Everything Henry Hill says must be taken with a grain of salt. Henry Hill is a known liar. Okay, he has lied on multiple occasions. Do I think he met with Sweeney directly? He claims that Sweeney showed him a player card of the schedule and says, these are the games where we're going to be a favorite in. And, and, and he was kind of complicit in all this. It must be said that in the indictment in this case, Jim Sweeney is not mentioned in this meeting. Okay. The only people at this meeting were the Perlas, Maisie, and Hill and Kuhn. Now, I think initially all these people assumed that Richard Kuhn was going to be the, 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 the string in all this. The problem was Kuhn wasn't that good a player, right? So like he wasn't going to necessarily affect completely the game. The good players on this team were Sweeney and Ernie Cobb. And I think the goal of Hill was to say, you know what? We need to get them involved here. However, the scheme would start, right? They find out that on uh, December 6, 1978, that's the first game they're going to attempt to bet into and win. Now, the goal of the gamblers, which were Maisie, Hill, um, uh, the, the Perlas, what they were going to do is always bet the dog in this game. And I want to, for anyone that doesn't know about gambling, in this first game, Boston College is a seven-point favorite against Providence. The gamblers were going to take Providence. So Providence needed to lose by six or less, and they would cash. So the goal of the fixer is, you know, just miss a shot or two. Or if you see the numbers eight, um, you know, do something where you let them score. You know, something very subtle where it, it it's not made aware. And in the game, you don't really notice this kind of stuff, right? The problem was they only had Kuhn really under their belt here, and they were going to pay him $2,500 if it was successful. It wasn't successful. Henry Hill and his counterparts uh, got absolutely crushed in this game. The final score, Boston College would win 83-64. So they blew out the seven-point number, won the game by 19. So they lose. First game out, they get this big advantage, and they lose. They realize very quickly that Richard Kuhn is not enough. They need to get more players. And this is where I think the signs kind of cross. Hill, I think, believes that Sweeney's in on this. Sweeney said he declined this. He didn't want to do this thing. Uh, also uh, approached by the group is this person, uh, Joe uh, Ballou. Ballou was a, a center on the team. He allegedly declines the opportunity. Now, then uh, Rocco Perla approaches Ernie Cobb. Now, Ernie Cobb was the best player on the team. Okay. He was a kid that down the road would probably play in the NBA, um, clean cut kid. Um, but again, all these kids back then and up until even let's say a year or two ago before the NIL deals back in the seventies, kids weren't making any money, right? They might go to school for free, but they're still living like any other college kid. So you approach these kids with $500,000. That's a lot of money for a kid like Ernie Cobb or, or, or Jim Sweeney or anybody. Now, Cobb claims that Rocco Perla approached him about just subtly, hey, you know, I'm a gambler, you know, just kind of told him what he did. 
and handed him $1,000. Now, Cobb would admit that he took $1,000 from Rocco Perla, but that was no reason to believe he was going to fix anything. Nothing was talked about. And he had said if it was, he would have declined it. But what these guys are trying to do is sow the seed of, hey, we want you to do this. Think about us. And if you do it, we'll take care of you. There was never any like confirmation. Like Cobb never said, yes, I'll do it. Or Sweeney, yes, I'll do it. It was kind of put to them, hey, you should do this. And if you do do this, we'll help you. We'll pay you. But if you don't do it, we're going to hurt you. And these are the guys that are going to do it. Henry Hill, you know, Jimmy Burke. Um, so that's the whole thing about this. The only person that was really complicit in the actual scheme is Kuhn at this point. So they set up the, this scheme and they feel like they have enough people now. They have Cobb, they have Sweeney. Those are the guys that can really change the outcome of a game. Um, so the Boston College team would continue their schedule. And I want to go over some of the subsequent games uh, that these guys uh, are uh, involved in. Okay, so the first game was a loser, as we know. Um, the next game that they would try to uh, fix is December 16th against the Harvard uh, Crimson. Kind of a local game, right? Harvard's in Boston, BC. Uh, BC's a 12-point favorite. So they're going to take Harvard here. Harvard hangs around. Game's very close. Um, you know, gamblers get it done. They finally win a game, which is big because they hadn't won the first game. But they got a win under their belt. Hill's happy. Everybody's happy. And what was interesting about the game is um, it, it was just a def- – it was, it was very free of defense, right? There was – it was a high-scoring game, played in the 80s. They feel like, hey, we've got something here. Henry Hill, I think, essentially almost, uh, you know, celebrates a little bit. Uh, they would also win the next game. Um, UCLA would be a big favorite against BC, to which the Gamblers would actually fade BC as an underdog and take the favorite. UCLA wins by 22. So they're 2-1. and one. They're making money. The Gamblers feel good. But again, guys, there's no actual belief that they're shaving points. The only one involved that's actually complicit is uh, Rick Kuhn. Um, now, they'd eventually get to uh, two big games involving New York teams, Fordham and St. John's. And these were big games because people like Henry Hill knew that they were going to get a lot more money down on this game. Uh, I think the Maisie uh, connection, uh, the Perlas, they all assumed this is going to be our opportunity uh, to kind of continue to do what we do. Um, you know, those games happen. They would win one and push one. But the big game that would really solidify this whole point-shaving scheme was a game down the road against Holy Cross. Now, Holy Cross was the rival of Boston College at the time. Holy Cross was a really good team. Um, and they kind of really assumed like this is going to be a nationally televised game. This is where we're going to put everything together and it's all going to work for us. Cause up until this point, they were kind of treading water. They were making a little money. You know, Henry Hill talked about, he had made some money. Burke had made some money. Now they realized at this point, we're all going to bet big on this game. Now Hill and Burke uh, are moving a lot of money through people like Martin Krugman. Now Krugman, if you've ever seen Goodfellas, he would be the Maury character. Uh, Krugman was involved with the salon business. He had a wig business. Uh, Maury uh, or Martin Krugman was a, also a big time numbers runner, a big time bookmaker. 
and through people like him, he was the people they were laying these bets off to. He was the book. He was the, they were the bookmakers. They were putting all this money into it. There were hundreds of thousands of dollars bet on this Holy cross game. Now for uh, the point shaving group, including Henry Hill, when it came to the Holy cross game, their goal was interesting because they were essentially going to bet on Holy cross. Holy cross was a three point favorite in this game. Um, they believed that, you know, Holy Cross was going to win quite quite comfortably. So they bet on Holy Cross. They faded Boston College in this game. Now, according to the report, and according to Paul Maisie, he claims he was the only person that bet on Boston College. He believed that for whatever reason, BC wasn't going to cooperate with this, and they were going to cover, and he was going to win. Henry Hill would talk about this is kind of the straw that they hoped would stir the drink, but it ended up being – the final, I think, nail in the coffin for everybody involved with this. Henry Hill claimed that that night he and Jimmy Burke would watch the game in a Queens home of Jimmy Burke and that ultimately he had a lot of money on it in upwards of $200,000 in today's uh, inflation. So they had a lot of money on this game. Uh, BC would ultimately lose by two. So Holy Cross didn't cover. Everybody lost, including Henry Hill. Jimmy Burke allegedly kicked the TV and essentially said he was done with this. He was done working with these kids. Uh, you know, they obviously aren't playing ball, da 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 um, In all, when we look at the point-shaving scheme, according to the indictment, there were nine games that supposedly were fixed. Now, in the nine games that Henry Hill and everybody bet, it ultimately worked out slightly well for everyone. The betters would win four of the games. There would be three losses and two pushes. Now, a push means that if the spread's nine and Boss College's favorite to win by nine, they win by nine. Everybody gets their money back. So in all, everyone made a little money here. According to Henry Hill, he said he would win a couple hundred thousand dollars. Uh, the other people involved in this said they won in the area of, you know, 25 to 50 grand. Some people said they didn't even win 10 grand. Now, in the end, all of the stuff that would happen with this would unravel. Because Henry Hill ultimately is involved with other things. And the thing about Henry Hill was, um, as we know, when you are a gambler, when you are a mobster, when you're a earner, you have to find ways to continue making money. And during all of this going on, the infamous Lufthansa heist happens. And we're not going to go into that because we've talked pretty openly about what happened there. Uh, Jimmy Burke and his associates you know, make away with one of the largest uh, robberies in the history of America. Um, there was a lot of heat on Burke. Burke starts killing people involved with the scheme. We all saw that play out in Goodfellas. But Henry Hill, through his Pittsburgh connections uh, with Paul Maisie, is moving a lot of drugs. And the ultimate problem for him was he eventually was going to get arrested. And we saw that play out in Goodfellas uh, in this scene where Henry Hill's on Long Island. The local police pull up and, 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 and pinch Henry Hill. So Henry Hill knows that the writing's on the wall because his involvement with the drug trade, his substance abuse, his problems with his wife, it was all boiling over. We saw that in Goodfellas. Henry Hill knew that he was a dead man on the street. So Henry Hill ultimately says, I need to end this. I need to cooperate because I know if I talk, they want Jimmy Burke, they want Paul Vario, they want people above me. And I'm not made, so 
I'm just going to go on all my friends. And we saw that. I don't need to rehash Goodfellas. But what is so crazy about this is, so the prosecutor that takes this case, this guy, Ed McDonald, he actually would play himself in Goodfellas. He and Hill are talking one day. And Hill's kind of laying out all the different things that he had done over the years. Because when you do a 302 or a profit session, you have to admit to all your crimes. And Hill would talk about the fact that at one point, a year or two earlier, he had actually participated in fixing games in, to what Hill would say, the Boston area. And he would confuse Boston College with BU, Boston University. And McDonald claims that he immediately remembered that at that time, BU didn't have lined games. They weren't giving you a line on those games. So maybe he was getting this confused with something else. Little to find out that McDonald was actually a Boston College graduate. And at one point was even on the freshman team of Boston College. So his eyes and ears perk up in this and says, hey, was it maybe Boston College? And Hill's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that was what happened. We were fixing games at Boston College. So McDonald just dumb luck stumbles upon this and essentially starts uh, hearing what ultimately happened here. So they kind of come up. Hill says, look, drop, get these state charges dropped. I'll cooperate. Uh, we'll roll it all into one and uh, you can get everybody here. Burke will be off on the hook here uh, and we'll take everybody down. Now, the problem for McDonald and the people in the FBI is Henry Hill starts spilling his guts to anyone that will listen. And Hill would talk very openly that when he cooperates, remember when you cooperate, guys, like the money stops. You stop making all this money through the mob and you know, you're sitting on savings that you may have or, or just money that you have. And a lot of these guys are blowing through money. So like savings weren't really you know, there. So Hill's not making much money. He's earning on a, according to him, subsistence level. A guy from Sports Illustrated comes to him, this author, and says, hey, I want to write this thing on this fix. Um, and they write it. Hill's paid $10,000. He starts spilling his guts about Jim Sweeney and, and everybody else. And McDonald's furious because our case is essentially all of this. Now, when you look back on this case, what's so crazy is Jimmy Burke, who was the guy they wanted, really wasn't that involved with this. He was just kind of told by Hill, hey, we have people that are on the take here. Bet on this. It's not like Burke calls them and says, hey, uh, you do this. Or I'm going to cut your arm off. Like nobody. No, there's no Burke involvement. But that's the thing about the government. They're willing to lay down with anyone to get people they don't like more. So in this case, they didn't really like Henry Hill, but. They're willing to like him enough because he could give them Jimmy Burke. And Jimmy Burke was a major problem. He had engineered the largest uh, burglary robbery in the history of America through an air terminal. They wanted Burke. Now, ultimately and subsequently after the SI article, uh, all of these individuals are indicted. Rocco and Tony Perla, Paul Maisie, Richard Kuhn, and Jimmy Burke. Now, what's interesting is... When we look back, and as I said, on this whole point-shaving scheme, there are two people that are not named in this indictment at all, including Jim Sweeney and Ernie Cobb. Now, as I said before, the one thing Ernie Cobb did do is he did take $1,000 from Rocco Perla, but according to the government, there was not enough to get him on anything there. 
They couldn't connect him to the, any proof. If you look back through the game footage, it doesn't really look like anyone at any point fixed anything. Same thing with Jim Sweeney. Jim Sweeney obviously had communication with these individuals, but there was no proof or reason to believe that Sweeney actually fixed anything. And according to him, he denies everything. He said, I never fixed anything. I never took anything. I never got anything. Now, for all these individuals, the writing was on the wall. Everybody did this. And through wiretaps, through Western Union money orders to Richard Kuhn, through witnesses. Remember, chief witness here is Henry Hill. Henry Hill's going to put this case on a silver platter. The problem for the government was Henry Hill was a terrible witness. What they also, though, do is they get Jim Sweeney to talk. They get Joe Boylow to talk, the other kid they try to get. And they also get a woman called Barbara Reed. Barbara Reed was a nurse who, during the career of Richard Kuhn at BC, she actually lived with him at some point. So she testifies that she saw him get money, have meetings. So there's a lot of here going against the people that orchestrated this whole thing. Remember, this whole thing started because two gamblers knew Rick Kuhn and thought, all right, let's do this. And through just knowing people, as we know, knowing people can get you far in life, but can also hurt you in life. They connect Maisie, they connect Henry Hill, they connect Jimmy Burke. And by the end of it, it's a huge case. It's a huge story. It's a huge legendary thing. Now, in the end, there was a lot of evidence against the everyone involved here. It's pretty shut and closed. They gave money to players and those players according to the government, people like Rick Kuhn participated in this. Remember though, no charges against uh, Sweeney and Cobb, the pl other players allegedly involved. As I've said, the only people involved that we can actually see on the court was Rick Kuhn. Now I want to get to ultimately what happens to everybody here. Um, we'll start with the Perlas. Uh, Rocco on the left uh, would be convicted. He would get four years in federal prison, his brother Tony would be hit with a 10-year sentence. So he was hit pretty hard. Uh, Richard Kuhn uh, would also get hit hard. He would be convicted and get 10 years in federal prison, which most people involved with connecting this case, people like Ed McDonald. Ed McDonald claimed that he was absolutely floored when Richard Kuhn got 10 years in prison, that was a steep sentence for something of this magnitude. Now, look, we're not saying that it's not bad, but 10 years in this kind of thing is crazy. Ultimately, Rick Kuhn would serve 28 months in federal prison after his sentence was shortened. So he would serve just over two years behind the wall. Jimmy Burke uh, would ultimately have uh, the worst ending to all these people. Look, the truth was, I mean, Jimmy Burke, this was one of the smaller things Jimmy Burke ultimately did. Uh, and remember, we don't think he was actually even involved. Jimmy Burke was also involved with dozens of murders, a large uh, cash uh, robbery, all sorts of different things. But he would ultimately get 12 years in this case. Uh, it would then, he would be convicted in a state court uh, and get a further 20 years, uh, Jimmy Burke would die on April 13th, 1996, in Buffalo, New York, in state prison. He would have been eligible for parole in 2004, but he died behind the wall. 
Paul Maisie uh, would also uh, get uh, 10 years in federal prison for this little stunt. Uh, he would ultimately get released. And weirdly enough, in 1990, he would do exactly what his former friend Henry Hill did. He would cooperate in the Pittsburgh mob trial of former underboss Chucky Porter. He would testify that at one point, uh, he and uh, Perla uh, in 1967, he would say him and not Perla, um, Porter participated in the armed robbery of a finance company. And he also testified that he and Porter were running dice games at private clubs in the 70s. So in the end, Paul Maisie became a rat, just like Henry Hill. At one point in the 2000s, they would rekindle their relationship and meet for a lunch somewhere in America because both were uh, connected at one point with uh, the um, witness protection program. Henry Hill uh, would live a pretty weird or interesting life uh, in the end. Uh, he would become uh, an individual who would star in films and on TV. He'd be seen regularly on the Howard Stern show, uh, but he was also a major drunk. He would write books. He had restaurants, but he would die in 2012 uh, from complications related to heart disease. Uh, both of these individuals are dead at this point. Uh, and when we look back on all this, when you look at the players involved, uh, Jim Sweeney uh, would actually become pretty successful. Uh, he would run a computer sales company, um, would ultimately uh, sell that business for a lot of money. According to a documentary he did with ESPN, he would say that his relationship to this day with Boston College is severed. And they have never had a relationship with him after the fact. Ernie Cobb was not complicit, according to the federal government, in any wrongdoing in this case. However, according to him, in the subsequent years after this whole uh, thing, uh, he would be blacklisted, essentially, from uh, the NBA. He would had a, uh, he had a contract with the New Jersey Nets that was severed, and he would ultimately go and play overseas in Israel. Rick Kuhn, we haven't heard much from. Uh, he has been seen uh, at times, but he wasn't involved with any sort of media involving this. There was a time at one point uh, upon his release from federal prison where he was involved a little bit with some speaking uh, in front of kids and things like that. But uh, he has not participated and or talked much about this whole thing uh, as being kind of the complicit guy. Look, the truth is, whether it's Cobb, Sweeney or Richard Kuhn, they were all young men who just essentially in the case of someone like Kuhn was just trying to make some money. I think um, Kuhn was a guy who made a dumb decision. Uh, it was definitely a bad decision uh, and he had to pay for his behavior. Um, in the end though, what's so interesting in all this is did the mob actually get played? There actually is really not that much proof that there was ever a fix here. No one really ever took any sort of admission and said, hey, yeah, I missed this shot or I missed that shot. And the truth is, as I said, Rick Kuhn uh, was not capable of fixing games. Uh, he had not a big enough role. Um, in the end, I'm sure several people made money. Now, Rocco and Tony Perla would claim that in the end, they actually lost money because all the money they had made was under 50 grand or 100 grand. So in the end, through all their legal bills and stuff, uh, they actually were cost, uh, they co were costed money. Uh, they cost money uh, in the end. So 
no one really made money, at least in their whole thing. And they're the ones that in the end got screwed because, you know, they tried to cut a corner and it came back and bit them. It's almost like if you're a gambler and I'll relate it to gambling today when you live bet. Right. And you're trying to double down and you just get crushed on all of it. And you try to outsmart yourself or you hedge and you try to outsmart yourself and you, you eventually lose both. That's what happened here. This all started because two gamblers were just trying to get an edge and they're the ones in the end that got screwed. My whole thing is when we really look back on the BC point shaving scandal, I think the connection to the Goodfellas crew obviously made this a much bigger story than it was. I think if this were connected to just Perla and Maisie, maybe we would never probably have really heard about this. Maybe we hear about it in passing, but the sensationalism of Henry Hill, Jimmy Burke, Goodfellas, this made this a lot kind of bigger, I think, than it was. Um, and this is something that they did not touch on in Goodfellas. Outside of one scene, when Maury is killed in the car by Tommy DeSimone, he mentions that through a guy called Nunzio, they had a BC point shaving scandal. But that's it. There was no actual mention of this in the film Goodfellas. Um, but this is really the case that took uh, Jimmy Burke off the street. And in the end, there's really no proof that he was actually connected with this. And he lost and what today's money would be about $200,000 in all this. So uh, a fascinating case involving the mafia and really one of the only mafia connected point shaving scandals we know of. I know the one in CCNY that was connection to the mob. And weirdly enough, I actually down the road, maybe we'll get into several years ago, there was a young mob wannabe on Staten Island called Benjamin Bafalco. He claimed that he had connections to someone on the Wagner basketball team, a Division I basketball team out of Staten Island that supposedly he could shave points. And he tried to take it up the ladder to one of his friends uh, who was connected with uh, a Colombo family capo called Joe Amato. And it was found out that he actually didn't really even know anyone at Wagner and he was just kind of blowing smoke. Um, but from what I understand, he actually did do a prison sentence for his behavior and all that. But outside of that, there's really not that much connection between any point-shaving schemes with the mob. Does the mob bet on this? Bookmaking? Surely. Um, but it's actually a lot less frequent than we think. Um, the only real winner in the end um, was uh, Jimmy Burke or uh, Henry Hill. Not Jimmy Burke, Henry Hill. Henry Hill got to cooperate and everything that he had done in his slimy life um, was forgiven. So I think the story was to me a little bit bigger than it was due to the Goodfellas connection. But I think we could also connect that to like some of the, the gangsters that we see today. Like, I don't think John A. Light would be as popular as he is on YouTube if he were connected with like a smaller level gangster. Like if he were connected with like, Carmine Tremonti, I don't think he would have been as powerful or, or on YouTube as important. But due to the fact that he was connected allegedly with John Jr. and maybe he met Gotti at one point, he's put up on a pedestal other than someone else. So I think the connection to the Goodfellas case was really the, I think, the sensational part of this. But in the end, I don't think it was that big a deal. Thank you for listening. As always, it was cool to kind of connect this to one of my first loves, which is gambling and college hoops. And uh, yeah, 
I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, this first uh, solo show I've done in a while, right? I haven't really done them. We're, we're really, again, trying to expand the show in so many different ways. Talk about other content, you know, whether it's Myrtles and the true crime stuff or, um, you know, the cartel content or, or whatever we're doing. Uh, and next week we got our 100th episode, which will be truly monumental for me. Um, I remember in April 2021 when I started this show, I never, I never thought we would be to 100 episodes, but. God willing, uh, next week, like I said, as long as I don't die, we'll be there. Uh, before you go, if you're checking us out on YouTube, make sure you hit that subscribe button and make sure you hit the like button. Uh, it really helps the show and it allows you to make sure you never miss another sit-down video. Uh, all of our friends on iTunes and Spotify and Google Pods, thanks for being here. Uh, check out all the links in the description of the video. Uh, go support the show by following us on our social media platforms, buy some merch, uh, and support me on Barstool, as always. We'll see you next week here on The Simple.